So this morning we are in a, a little series on faith. You guys have been studying faith together, and I think he saved a tough one and got out of town because today we are going to talk about revenge, the relationship between revenge and faith. And I actually think revenge is one of the most natural human impulses, and I think we are born wanting revenge, and I think it takes a whole lifetime of faith to put revenge out of our life. So a few years ago, there was a prank war that was on the internet. So they were posting these videos on YouTube of this prank war, and these two guys were pranking each other. And you know how prank wars work, right? Like you do something minor, and then somebody goes over the top, and then you go over the top of them, and you go over the top on them. And the last prank of this prank war was phenomenal. So this, this guy is at an L.A. Lakers basketball game. And he's the one that has been pranking the other guy. And he's at this game, and at halftime, they call his name to come down and shoot the half-court shot for $20,000 or something. So he comes down, and they take him in the back, and they put a blindfold on him. And while he's in the back, the guy who is pranking him comes out on the court, and he says, this is a prank. What we're going to do, when the guy shoots, wait a second, and then no matter what happens, everybody go crazy. Everybody cheer. So he goes back. The guy comes out. It's a blindfolded half-court shot. So he dribbles up. He can't see anything. He launches the ball. It doesn't go anywhere near the goal. And a second after it's left his hand, everybody in the place goes nuts. The guy rips off the blindfold, the, the screens are blaring, he's running around, throwing his hands up in the air because he thinks he's made this half-court shot. And about 20 seconds into this, the other guy just walks onto the court. And you can see the guy turn, and when he sees the guy, he falls down onto his knees because he knows what's just happened. He didn't make the half-court shot, he didn't make the money, he got pranked on national TV. It was a phenomenal prank. I don't know how you even top that. But this is, this is a funny example, but this comes naturally to us. We want to get revenge on other people. We want to outdo them. We want to show them that they should never mess with us. If you've ever played sports, you know this is true, right? Who always gets called in a sporting event? The person who retaliates. It's never the first person. It's never the person that does it to you. It's always when you shove them back or when you foul them back, then you get it. Right? We have an expert at this in Oklahoma City. If you have ever watched Steven Adams play basketball, that guy will pick and prod and pick and prod and talk until somebody punches him and they get thrown out of the game. He knows. He knows what we're talking about today. The revenge, getting back at someone, is one of our most fundamental instincts. When somebody does something to us, we want to do something back to them. And Jesus is going to teach us a little bit about this today. Look, if you would, in your Bibles. If you've got a Bible open or if you're on phone or something, we're going to be in Luke chapter 17 today, the first 10 verses. And we're just going to split it into two chunks. So we're going to start out, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Jesus is going to give us a little bit about um, forgiveness. He's going to talk a little bit about how we react to people. And then in verses 5 through 10, we're going to talk about the role that faith plays in eliminating, eliminating vengeance from our life. Look at me, if you would, at 17, verse 1. Then he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. But 17, yeah, 17. 
Temptations of sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Jesus is teaching his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. So the place we are in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he knows that he will be arrested, he will be beaten, he will be crucified, and he will die. And he's told his disciples over and over and over again, the Son of Man must suffer and must die, and then he will rise again. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, and he must be killed, he must be lied against, he must be convicted falsely so that he can rise from the dead. And the disciples just don't get it. Over and over again, they don't get it. They don't want to go to Jerusalem. But it's time for the Passover, and they're making their transition to Jerusalem. And Jesus is using these moments as a teachable moment. In a couple of the other Gospels, we see that the disciples on the way to Jerusalem are talking about who should be the greatest. You remember the story when James and John, they asked Jesus, hey, we want you to do what we want you to do. And Jesus says, what do you want? And they say to him, we want you to tell us that we'll get to sit on your right hand and on your left hand in your kingdom. This is what the disciples are arguing about on the way to Jerusalem. And I wonder if this is kind of in the backdrop of this conversation. Jesus is going, getting ready to sacrifice his life for all people. And the disciples just want to know who gets to be his number two guy in heaven. And so Jesus begins to talk to them about temptation, sin, and forgiveness. In the first part of these verses, the issue at hand is temptation. He says, woe to those through whom temptations come. So there's a truth that Jesus is playing on that we know to be true, and that is temptations to sin are going to come. Anybody had that experience? (laughs) Temptations to sin are going to come. And what Jesus is basically saying is, don't make it any harder on yourself And don't make it any harder on anybody else. He says, temptations are going to come, so we're all going to have to deal with that. But woe to that person through whom they come. In plain words, this means you're already going to be dealing with temptation, and so is everybody else. Woe to you if you are the one who begins to tempt other people. And there's some pretty harsh words here. Verse 2, it would be better for that person who tempts others to sin if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. That's a pretty stern language from Jesus. And it brings us to the first point of what we're talking about today. If we're talking about revenge and forgiveness and faith, one of the points that we have to realize is that God takes sin very seriously. If for no other reason revenge is wrong and taking action against somebody else is wrong because it's sinful. We know that. Sinning is wrong. He says it would be better for you if a millstone. So what is a millstone? So millstones could range anywhere from this big to the size of these tables. And they had a hole in the middle. And they were for crushing grain and grapes. And you would put the grapes in under them. And the millstone would sit on top of them. And it would squeeze out all of what you were trying to gather because of the weight of the stone. You'd get 
a pack animal, you'd attach it to it and walk it around, and it would grind the millstone. And he's saying, just take one of those guys off, put a string around it, throw it around your neck, and jump in the sea. You would be better off than what God will do to you who tempt these little children. Harsh, harsh words. So then he says this, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. What's the connection here? Seems a little bit weird that Jesus jumps from temptation, don't tempt other people, to if your brother sins against you. The connection is that the sin that Jesus is specifically talking to here is revenge, retaliation. There's a temptation that comes when somebody retaliates against us. So if somebody does something bad to me, my impulse is to do something bad to them, then they're stuck with a decision. Do I retaliate again and and cause them potentially to stumble by retaliating to me? Or do I let the offense slide? What Jesus is saying is, if you are a Christian, if you're walking with Christ, your reaction is to let it go. Let it go. And he he gives us a process here for how this looks. Jesus, he shifts the focus and he starts to talk about what does forgiveness look like? And there's four things I think we can, we can talk about and then we're going to discuss it at our tables. There's a formula given in verse three and four. If your brother sins, so if you're thinking about your own life, just, you could just check that off for the week. Somebody will sin against you this week, guaranteed. Probably today. Somebody will sin against you before lunch today. If somebody sins against you, Here's what you should do. Rebuke him. Sometimes this is possible. Sometimes this isn't. In traffic, we try to rebuke people through the windshield. It's not usually effective. Sometimes, I don't know. Maybe somebody has a story of a time that they yelled at somebody and it made a big difference, but it hasn't been my experience. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. In order to be able to do this, Jesus is making the same assumption in these verses he is in the verses above. If you're going to do this, you have to be able to understand what sin is. If you you need to recognize sin in somebody else's life, you need to know what sin is. And how do we know what sin is? You can answer. How do we know what sin is? Anything that makes you angry? No. No. Read the Bible. Right, read the Bible. Jesus has a lot of teaching in the Gospel of Luke about what sin is. There's a pretty bright line between what is sinful and what's not sinful. You see what is sinful, and then you bring it up to somebody. Now, what we're going to discuss at our tables is, what's the best way to do this? There are good ways, and there are bad ways to do this. You bring it up to them, you rebuke them, and then when they ask for forgiveness, that's the sign that your rebuke went well. They ask for forgiveness, and you forgive them. So I want to ask you, If the end goal is forgiveness. So in this passage, the end of this whole process is you forgiving them. That's where we're going here is the goal for you as a Christian is to forgive them. If the end goal for you is to forgive the other person, how does that determine the way that you rebuke? That's the question we have to ask. If we want to get to the place where we forgive them, how should we go about 
bringing up their sin. I want you to take just three or four minutes at your tables, discuss this. I know we have all dealt with this probably in the last few days. And then I want to hear a little bit of what you think. And then Jesus is going to tell us, how do we make this happen? So if your goal is to forgive someone, how does that entail that you bring up their sin? Discuss that for a couple minutes and then we'll finish. Okay, guys, I want to hear from three of you. I want to hear at least three. What, what does this look like? If Jesus is saying, look, the end goal of every time that somebody sins against you is forgiveness. That's the goal. So if that's the goal, how does that inform the way we go about talking to other people about sin? Let's get, let's get a couple of things. Who, who has something they want to share? Nobody? Go ahead. Yes, approach it in the servant's position. That mindset makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, the forgiveness starts at the beginning, right? You go at it knowing that you are not perfect either. I th- anybody else? One more? Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. That's what Paul tells us. One of the characteristics that defines Christian community. Go ahead. (laughs) Unless. Yeah. Yeah. Doing it in private, all of these things, there's an underlying principle here. It's very, very difficult to forgive someone if you don't care about them. It's very difficult to forgive someone if you're not interested in what God has done in you and in them, right? Doing it in private, that, that helps us to see a little bit of respect for the other person. You don't have to like them, right? A lot of the times when we're forgiving people, you don't have to like them. You don't even have to want to spend time with them. You don't even have to wish good things on them. But what you do have to understand is that God has called you to forgive them. That's the underlying principle here, is that we have been called, we have a standard between us and God that then filters out into the way that we treat other people. You don't forgive other people because of their merits, We don't forgive other people because they're nice people. We don't forgive other people because they're pretty much a good guy. We forgive other people because God forgave us. Forgiveness, right, we've heard this before. Forgiveness is if when you hold a grudge and you don't forgive, it's like drinking poison and expecting it to kill the other person. That's what holding a grudge is like. It kills you. And one of the things that Jesus is saying is, look, sin is something that's between you and God. And so forgiveness is something that's between you and God. And in the same way that what God has done for us spills out into other people, we bless other people because God has blessed us, we forgive other people because God has forgiven us. So the disciples, this is one of the things I love about the disciples, is they always say what we're going to end up thinking. They say in a lot of ways what we might not be bold enough to say. Look with me at verse 5. So Jesus says this. He lays it down. This is harsh teaching. Look, Don't tempt others to sin. Don't retaliate. Forgive everyone. Verse 5, the apostles say, 
increase our faith. Right? Here's the, here's the thing. If you're going to go through your life and you're going to forgive other people, doesn't that sound like it's going to put you in a vulnerable position? I remember when I was a counselor, six and seven-year-old kids all summer. And one of the things, of all the things that was the hardest to teach these kids, it was don't retaliate. Don't retaliate because everything, before you know it, somebody accidentally elbows somebody in the dining hall. Five minutes later, you're hitting each other with broomsticks. I mean, it's just, that's just the way kids work. They just want to do that. And I remember sitting this kid down and I said, you don't have to punch him because he punched you. And it, I can tell, I just not, this is just not clicking to him. It's, you could just, you could just not do anything or you could just come tell me and I will punish him. And I remember him sitting there, and this is like, oh, this is so me too. I just couldn't admit it at the, at the time. He goes, yeah, but, but if he punches me then, and I don't punch him, then he'll just get to punch me. And I said, yeah, maybe he does. And that's us though. But, but if I forgive them, if they do something to me, and I don't get to do something to them, then, then I'll just have to be wronged. And Jesus is like, yeah. You might have to be. And so the disciples ask the question, or they, they make the statement that we're all saying, well, if I'm going to do that, then I'm going to need some more faith. I'm going to need to trust God a little bit more. If I'm just going to let people wrong me, and I'm going to let it go, and I'm going to be Christ-like all the time, and I'm not going to look out for my own interests, then I'm going to need a lot more faith. And Jesus says, okay, we can arrange for that. Increase our faith, Lord. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say this to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So we know that the, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed in the world, but it is a very small seed. I looked it up this week. You can have 225,000 mustard seeds in a pound. 225,000 mustard seeds in a pound. And I'm not, I'm not uh, a gardener, but I wanted to know, what, what does your translation say? Mine says mulberry tree. Anybody got anything else? Sycamore. So this is a big tree. I looked this up too. The mulberry tree has the deepest root system of the known trees in Israel during this time. And so what Jesus is saying is, if you have faith like a mustard seed, a tiny, tiny mustard seed, you can say, uproot that tree, go into the sea. In, other, in parallel text, it says, you can say to that mountain, move into the sea. How does this happen? How does this happen? How does this play into faith? This is the picture of faith that Jesus is giving. If you have faith that starts out like a tiny, tiny little seed, and it's watered, it's fertilized, it grows, slowly over time, that tiny little seed can grow to be enormous. So we've been working through the gospel of Mark in my men's Bible study. We talk all the time. This is one of Mark's favorite metaphors is if you walk down the sidewalk, there's two ways that you can break up a sidewalk. You can bring in a backhoe and you can dig down and you can rip the sidewalk out of the ground. That will work. You can do that. But more commonly what happens, and we know this, if you've walked on a sidewalk recently, a little bitty seed gets planted under the sidewalk. And as the seed starts to grow, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden, one day, the sidewalk begins to split. 
And how many times have you walked down a sidewalk and you see a big crack and one tiny little sprout going out the top? What Jesus is saying here is, look, there's the backhoe and there's the mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven, your faith, is like a mustard seed. If you just have a little bit and it begins to grow bit by bit by bit, it will smash through all of the hardness of heart in your heart. It will allow you to forgive other people. It will break through the power of grudges that you've held. It will break through disbelief. It will lead you to trust in God. It will break through doubts. Your little mustard seed of faith can grow to overcome your sense that you must offend yourself. Now, Jesus does provide for us the backhoe method. In the Bible, it is clear in every section of the Bible, this statement is made. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Over and over and over and over again, from the beginning of the, of the Bible to the end of the Bible, God will protect those who are His. Our job is just to wait until God makes things right in our life and in the world. God will be the one that does that. Romans chapter 12 says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is a statement that we need to remind ourselves. You can't control other people, but you can control yourself. Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave wrath to God, for it is written, this is in Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Sometimes that's the only motivation to forgive. But if, if that's true, if that's true, that's, just, that's an okay motivation. That's a good place to start. That's the mustard seed kind of faith. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Bonhoeffer, who actually two weeks ago was the anniversary of Bonhoeffer's death in Germany. One of his quotes that's just stuck with me my whole life. The cross of Christ is the only proof in the world that suffering love can avenge evil. We get to display that in our life every day. Faith like a mustard seed. So we got to ask a question, how do I grow my faith? I'm not equipped with the amount of faith right now to forgive everyone. I don't have the experience in my life that I have become so transformed into the image of Christ that people could nail me to a cross and I would forgive them. That's not what I've got going right now. How do I get to that place? How do I increase my faith? Jesus tells us a story that helps us to understand this. Verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at my table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is confusing. This is, I've never heard a Devo on this passage, right? I've never seen these verses on a coffee cup or on a Christian t-shirt to my knowledge, this is not the theme for Vacation Bible School this summer. This is a strange story. Not a very politically correct story in our day and age. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you're a master in the ancient world and you have a servant, one of the servant's job was to prepare your meals. So there was a cook or somebody. What he's saying is it could be the servant who's out in the field preparing your meals. And what he's saying, and this doesn't go over very well with us, is 
you don't thank the servant for just doing their job. I'm kind of reading this being like, you should. You should thank them for just doing their job. But he says, you don't thank the servant for just doing their job. You thank them for doing an excellent job. A servant is not commended for doing a decent job. A servant is committed for doing a good job, a great job. They're committed for going above and beyond what is expected of them. And here's the, here's the parallel for us. This starts to make a little bit more sense. What he's saying is, why would you expect God to give you more faith when you don't exercise the faith that you already have? That's where this starts to dialogue with our lives. How do you expect to grow in your faith when you're not even using the faith that you have? Here's one that makes sense to me. How do you expect to get any stronger when you don't even go to the gym? How do you expect your muscles to grow when you don't even use them? And he's saying, how do you expect your faith to increase when you don't believe God for the things that he's given you faith to believe now? And so that's like saying, how am I going to forgive this giant thing? I've got this giant thing in my past that somebody has done, and there's no way in the world I could ever forgive them. He's saying, how do you expect to have the faith to believe them when you can't even overlook this tiny little thing that you can overlook? What Jesus is saying is, if you want to increase your faith, if you want to go from a mustard seed to a sidewalk mover, you need to start exercising the faith that God has given you now. Start trusting God in the things in your life now. Don't try to conquer the mountain yet. Try and conquer the pebble. God has given you sufficient faith for the things that are in your life now. Start to trust Him and then watch what He does with your faith. So I just want to conclude with two things. First, exercising our faith, like exercising our muscles, right? Using the faith that God has given us is pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God. We read in the Bible that faith is a gift. Right? It's a gift that we need to use. It's a gift that we have to respond to. But faith is a gift. God has given us faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. What does that mean? When you have faith, you are pleasing to God. When you put your trust in Christ, God is pleased with you. No matter what you've done in the past, God is pleased with you. Exercising faith is pleasing to God. And in turn, God increases our faith. As we trust in him, God increases, right? God doesn't give us grace for the month. He gives us grace for the day. And so you take your faith, you take the grace that you've been given, you use that today and come whatever will tomorrow, God will provide faith and grace tomorrow for that. Forgiving one another every day is important for our faith to grow. Here's the challenge. Try it. Try it. So Steve probably mentioned to you, he uses the NIV standard lesson commentary. It picks the passage every week that you teach on so that you get to teach the whole counsel of God. It's in Acts 20, 27. We are teaching the full counsel of God. And one of the application questions in there was, can you forgive someone every day? Can you forgive someone every day? Can you think of an opportunity every day to forgive someone? What this passage is saying is, if you would spend some of your time and energy forgiving someone, your faith would grow abundantly. Your trust in the Lord would grow abundantly. So that's a challenge. Try to forgive someone today. Trust Christ, trust God to be the avenger and don't play the avenger. See if you can forgive someone today and tomorrow and the next day. Number two, exercising faith shows a faithless world a faithful God. Exercising faith shows a faithless world, a faithful God. 
Right? The Gospels are clear that we are the picture of Christ to the world. Do you remember a couple of years ago, it's been a few years now, when that group of Amish people forgave the person who came into their schoolhouse and shot their children? Can you even imagine? Can you even imagine? There's two things on that. Number one, what God tells us is, look, they didn't start out with that. That wasn't their first, that wasn't their first foray into forgiveness. They started forgiving each other on a daily basis. They started forgiving others for small things, and their faith grew. And when the time came, God worked in them in a mighty way to forgive something that we can't even imagine happening. But they didn't start with that. They started small. They started to grow up. God gives them the faith they need in that moment. But do you remember what a witness that was in the media? Right? That's one of those where sometimes Christianity and the media, they overlap, and they can kind of understand what's going on. Like when a Christian does something to somebody else, they're like, well, they're kind of justified. When somebody does something to you, you do something to them. They're, they understand that. They could not understand what these people were doing. You mean nothing? You mean you, you forgive them? You talk to these people's families? That, that just, it, it doesn't even register in their minds. When we forgive other people, when we exercise our faith, we are showing a faithless world a faithful God. When we show people that we can love them unconditionally, that we can forgive them, what this passage teaches is unending forgiveness, right? He says, if somebody, if somebody sins against you seven times in one day, you should still forgive them. School teachers in the room, it goes beyond seven, okay? It's, that's, that's just a metaphor. If somebody sins against you seven times in one day, you forgive them. Unending forgiveness, unconditional love. When you do that, you are showing the world the best picture of what our God is like. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving, not holding our sins against us. That's what our God is like. When you exercise faith, and in this passage, when you forgive, you show a faithless world a faithful God. So start at square one. Don't try, don't try and forgive the greatest thing that's ever happened to you, the worst thing. Just start by forgiving the person that slights you. Forgive the person that uses a tone with you that offends you. Start by forgiving the person that is selfish in front of you when you want to be selfish. Start there. Watch your faith grow. Steve's been asking a question at the end of these lessons that I think is so important. Do you trust him? Do you trust God? Or are you trying to keep your own score? Do you trust God? Or are you trying to make the world right? Do you trust God to take care of you even when you leave yourself open for others to take advantage of? Do you trust God in the way that he has forgiven you? Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you first and foremost that you forgave us in Jesus Christ. Lord, there are a lot of mountains in our life. There's a lot of mulberry trees. And Lord, we hope that someday, maybe today, you will give us the faith to move those. But Lord, we know that you've given us faith to handle the day-to-day cares that we have. Lord, we know that you've given us the faith of a mustard seed, and we want to use that. Lord, help us. Be with us. Lord, give us the grace to forgive today and tomorrow. And Lord, increase our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.